The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. Show notes for this episode and a lot of other fun stuff can be found at www.uncontrolledairspace.com. It seems like we just did this yesterday, but we're back again. Ways to safely return to flight in the spring. How the proposed FAA budget and new aviation fees will affect general aviation flying. And the gang reminisces about when they first learned to fly. All this and more on Uncontrolled Airspace, episode number 15. Come on in, the water's fine. Fine, I got my orange crush. We are ready. That's right. Well, all right, here we are. Didn't we just do this the other day? It seems like... We, yeah, uh, deja vu all over again. I know. Time's fun when you're flying. For any of the listening audience who are, who are paying attention to such things, although we officially do this podcast on an every two-week basis, we've been actually doing it more often than that for a while now, and for the last couple of episodes, we're actually experimenting with doing it weekly, and uh, I think the jury's still out on whether weekly makes sense, but... Uh, well, the jury is, is those who listen to us, yeah. and... Uh, so welcome if, to Uncontrolled uh, Airspace to, podcast number 15. <laughs> and, yeah, right. if, they con- if they continue to download and listen, then we'll continue to... Uh, record and uh, I think weekly is probably about as frequent as we want to do it. Oh, but, I think uh, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. As long as sure. we don't do it weekly. <laughs> but in any event, we are back six days after the most recent episode and with uh, episode number 15. Uh, together again uh, is, let's see, Jeb's there. Hi, Jeb. Jeb Burnside from uh, Springfield, Virginia is a uh, freelance aviation journalist, currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine, and also as a contributing editor to Web Biz. Hi, Jeb. How you doing? Good evening, all ladies and gentlemen, ships at sea. Now, we've been, we, we, we were fighting a pitched battle in the half hour prior to starting this recording on getting Skype to work. Skype is kind of one of these things where, where some, some nights it works perfectly, and other nights it's kind of flaky. Tonight's definitely a flaky night. So yeah. Much you know. like the personalities on this podcast. <laughs> so bear Uh-oh. with us. Oh, we are in deep kimchi, I can tell now. Also with us, Dave Higdon, talking to us from Wichita, Kansas. Dave is an aviation photographer and a senior editor at Kit Planes Magazine, and also the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. How you doing, David? Happy, happy February to everybody. Here we are, second month of the year. Time's fun when you're flying. That's is right. it cold enough where you are? Oh, man, it's cold. Yeah, this is getting old. It's definitely getting old. And I want to talk about that in a minute. But first, I want to do two little bits of business here. Uh, before we get rolling along too too rapidly here, I want to remind everyone that in addition to listening to this podcast, we hope that everyone will visit the Uncontrolled Airspace website at uncontrolledairspace.com. There's all sorts of good stuff to be found there. Uh, you can see show notes for all of our shows with links to the web pages we talk about and other background information. You it's, can it's non-threatening and non-fattening. That's right. You can listen to previous episodes. 
episodes. You can check out the Uncontrolled Airspace blog where we post all sorts of GA-related items that we've been following. You can sign up for our reminder email list, and you can also get instructions on how to get a free subscription to the podcast through one of the podcatcher programs like iTunes or iPodder or Juice or others. Also remember to tell all your friends that you do not need an iPod to listen to podcasts like this one. You can download the cast to any portable audio device or just listen on your laptop or desktop computer. So visit the website at uncontrolledairspace.com, one visit a week, that's all we ask. Uh, The other bit of business I wanted to is, uh, this is a little bit of a, well, it's a mystery, kind of crowing, kind of begging, kind of combination thing. Um, about a week ago, I know if you, one of the places this podcast is listed where people can find out about us is, as I said a moment ago, in the iTunes, the Apple's iTunes iTunes store. They changed the name recently. I'm still stumbling over it. The iTunes store, uh, and and in addition to just basic information about the podcast, there. You, Listeners can leave little comments, you know, like, you know, attaboy, best podcast in the world, you know, that kind of thing. Bad dog, bad dog. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Don't ever come to my computer again. And about a week ago, I noticed that we had finally received our first bit of feedback in the iTunes store. And I was very excited about this and I made a note to mention it on the the podcast tonight. And then earlier today when I went to to go look at it. No, well, all right, but I did go back, and it's gone. No, it's gone. It's worse than that. It's disappeared. I don't understand. I don't know if the guy can't change his mind and and took it out, or I don't know whether what happened, but it's it's gone now. Is it like is it like Craigslist where people can where users can delete posts and stuff? Uh, maybe that's what it is. I don't know. All I know is I want to invite everybody to leave us a little bit of feedback. There's all kinds of ways to give us feedback, and one of them is to go to the iTunes store and and add a little uh, little comment there. You know, like you know, uh, it's an eye mystery. So uh, that's on the the iTunes store. We're listed under uh, we're listed under hobbies and recreation. Go figure. All right, uh, but uh, there's an aviation section that's in in part of the category hobbies and recreation. And, they don't have one for addictions and afflictions. <laughs> they do. We're listed there as a subcategory. <laughs> yeah, but as, as as an addiction or an affliction. Yeah, all of the above. All of the above. So speaking of the weather and speaking of uh, dreaming about it becoming spring, um, I, I have, <laughs> sign, sign me up. I have a question for you guys. It's my sense, and correct me if I'm wrong. It's my sense that there are a lot of us pilots. I know I'm one of them um, who fly a lot less in the winter time. Um, I, I'm. I bet there are a lot of pilots who fly nearly not at all in the wintertime. And my question is, uh, how careful do we need to be when we return to flight in the spring? Uh, much, much more. Much more careful. Tell us a little bit about that, uh, Jeb. Uh, well, um, and I guess maybe I'm a little bit of a poster child here, and, and by way of you know perhaps true confessions, I have not flown a whole lot here in the last several weeks. Um, I flew my daughter... Uh, back down to college in mid-January, brought the airplane back, parked it, and uh, other than looking fondly at it a couple of times since then, haven't really done anything with it. Now, that said, I kind of have a mission here over the weekend as part of a project uh, I'm working on for an aviation consumer article. I need to go fly it um, to kind of get some before and after data. Uh, I can talk about that project a little bit more if someone wants to, but uh, uh, I'll be flying it here over the weekend, but but very briefly, just to warm the engine up uh, and uh, 
kind of have a baseline for some additional data we're collecting on the engine. Um, the the punchline in all of this is, and you, you've read about this. You you hear people talk about it uh, uh, in presentations or or uh, in other podcasts. Uh, um, when you don't fly, you get rusty, and uh, I have found that to be the case in as little as seven days. Uh, I, I've I've flown sometimes 250 hours in a year, and lately, in the last year or two, my flying has dropped off to maybe between 100 to 150 hours a year, uh, and I can I can feel the inexperience. I can feel the rust in my skills and in my uh, airplane handling abilities. Uh, just running through the checklist, uh, things like that, that, that uh, oh, yeah, you know, it's starting to come back to me kind of thing. And then the light bulb goes off and says, well, the reason, dummy, it's coming back to you is because you haven't done it lately, and you better be a little bit more careful this time. Don't get so cocky. And that's, that's not just a winter phenomenon. It's, it's not just it, a winter phenomenon. It, it's something that needs to we need to be mindful of any time we, we we have some uh, extended downtime away from the cockpit, away from airtime. Uh, I've had years when I when I didn't fly 100 hours, but I flew a little over an hour a week, and never felt as uncomfortable as uh, one year when I was flying in excess of 150 hours a week when I went three weeks without flying. Right. And came back from that three weeks and it was, sat there in the cockpit for a minute and went. Okay, where did I start this process? And I'm looking right. at the checklist and like get back out of the airplane and walk around it all over again one uh -huh. more time. This one with the with with the realization that maybe I wasn't all that focused the first time I walked around. Uh, didn't find anything the second time that I shouldn't have found the first time, but it sure put my mind more at ease. Uh, you know, that I wasn't tooling off down the road, not remembering whether I'd checked for the pedo cover or something silly like that. Uh, took a little bit longer to, uh, to go through the checklist, sat there on the ramp with the engine run a little bit longer, going back through my flight plan, where I was headed and what I was going to do. And it was an instrument day on top of it all, which, uh, uh, I was instrument current, but it had been a it had been a few weeks since I'd actually flown on the gauges. So anytime we take a break from that, we, we do ourselves well if we take a little more time and pay a little more attention to what we're getting ready to do. One note about um, a long winter layover and getting back into the, into the saddle uh, come springtime, and of course spring will come in different areas of the country at different times. But um, spring, of course, is uh, uh, that that never never land between winter and summer, and uh, you have qualities of both. Um, you have uh, thunderstorms. You have, or certainly you have uh, convective activity. You have uh, fierce uh, cold winds. Crosswinds are the norm uh, here on the East Coast uh, in, in March and April. You can still uh, find ice at altitude. You can still find ice at altitude. Uh, you can find very quickly changing weather patterns, much more so than in the summertime, very reminiscent of winter. And uh, if, if someone has taken off, you know, two or three months here and going out to get their bangs and goes and, and uh, carry the wife and kids off to Never Neverland, uh, they need to, to be thinking a little bit more uh, 
than they were when they parked the airplane in, say, November. Mm -hmm. Can it reach a point where you should even go check out with your CFI? Very, very quickly. It sure can. can. It can sure can. Um, it, one, one hedge that I like to use against uh, getting too far out of kilter, uh, and thankfully I've got a, uh, I've got a bride who kind of encourages me to, uh, to stay current, uh, you haven't flown in a couple of weeks. Why don't you, you know, take the afternoon, go out to the airport, you know, just do a few touch and goes, or maybe bop off to to Benton Airport. It was a whole seven miles, or El Dorado, twelve miles. Dave, she's just trying to get to you out of the house. Man. Yeah, that's what I was going to yeah, say. That, she's just well, trying to get rid of you. But she's a saint, nevertheless. You know. yes, I was going to say, yes. you know, none, none, nonetheless, you know, it, it, and, it worked and, in both of our favors because she <laughs> felt a, she felt a whole lot more comfortable a few days later when we were uh, suiting up, loading up to go, you know, twelve hundred miles cross country in a day. Well, that 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 explains it also. She wants to make sure that you're uh, uh, survival you know, instinct, recent experience. Yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, <laughs> you know. And I love Annie to death, and I, I really wish she had a, an unattached sister. But uh, you, you don't don't ascribe to her characteristics that that aren't really there. <laughs> so, in addition to being concerned about the pilot being rusty, what about the airplanes being rusty? Well, so to speak. that's yes, literally and figuratively. Um, especially an airplane that's parked out on the ramp um, uh, during the winter time, uh, which you know, again, if I if I had an airplane I, I cared about, um, I wouldn't leave it out on the ramp, but I'd certainly perhaps make an effort to fly it more during the winter time uh, oh, than I might otherwise do, just just for just to keep everything well maintained and and uh, lubricated and all that kind of thing. But clearly, in in springtime here in the Mid Atlantic region, um, you've got things like birds' nests, you've got um, uh, those kinds of concerns. But you also have um, the the fact that all the fluids, um, all the lubricants, uh, all the instruments, in fact, all all everything mechanical on the airplane has been frozen. Uh, and thawed and frozen and thawed. There's condensation. <laughs> there's there's uh, wear and tear uh, on these components that occurs even when the airplane is sitting. So uh, if you haven't flown your airplane in, in a couple of three months here, and you get into let's let's knock wood here and say that mid March is the Ides of March are going to be a uh, are going to be good weather, uh, good flying weather here in the East Coast, uh, and you. Uh, haven't seen your airplane in three months, and you go and get in it and turn the key and taxi out to take off. That's probably not the smartest thing you could do. You need to uh, maybe pull the cowling off and maybe pull a few inspection covers and uh, poke around and make sure there's no ice or snow still hidden in the fuselage, that there's no bird's nests or anything like that under the cowling, that uh, um, the freezing weather hasn't... Uh, um, done some other kind of uh, damage or, or status change, shall we say, to, to various components in the airplane. Yeah. So uh, use caution when you go back yes, to flight. absolutely. But definitely do it because... And definitely go fly. I mean, the two best things that you can do for yourself and your airplane yeah. are fly and uh, fly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. E exactly right, Dave. A interesting story, new subject, uh, interesting story this past week. Um, this King Air that uh, 
had a, a decompression <laughs> at, at high altitude. Uh, and you there's guys a crew that's got good karma. I'll tell you, it's true. Every story I saw, including the blog posting I made, made reference to miracle. I mean, you tell us the story because it, it's just miraculous. If you ask uh, me, King Air on a flight uh, from, uh, I believe it was Arkansas, back to uh, to, to Tennessee, uh, had a little bit of a crack form on the inner layer of the uh, the windshield yeah, just in the cabin. So for people who are not familiar, can, can I give us a basic description of a King Air? King Air, twin-engine turboprop, uh, depending on the model, 225 to 260-knot airplane, pressurized. Uh, these guys, I believe, were up at flight level 270, 27,000 feet. The inner, and that's getting pretty close to the top for a King Air. Yeah. The... Uh, inner layer of one of the windshields developed a crack and that's very quickly spread across the whole inner piece of glass. Now the windshield on a King Air is a two-ply, like like on most automobiles for a matter of fact, two plies of material with a mylar uh, layer in between to keep it from shattering. Uh, the uh, crew very quickly depressurized the aircraft uh, to hopefully avoid the windshield blowing out. They put on their O2 mask, turned on the valves, didn't think they were getting any oxygen, uh, apparently passed out. Uh, when they came to, when the captain came to, they were down to about 7,000 feet and going down fast enough that they had buckled wing skins and shed parts of the horizontal stab and uh, elevator. They didn't have much of that left when they landed, uh, uh, made an emergency landing, uh, uh, and, and everybody walked away. Yeah. Uh, th that's the guys passed out at altitude from the lack of oxygen, but came to in time to save themselves in the airplane. That's that's why everybody ascribes the the the, the adjective yeah, miracle. I mean, it's on just that. astounding. I, I just wow. It is, and and. Uh, um, a couple of a couple of additional comments. It, it, it's just more evidence of uh, uh, how well these airplanes are built. Not just Beechcrafts and not just King Airs, but uh, um, general aviation aircraft generally. How well they're designed and how and how well they're built that that airplane kept together. Uh, at least most of most of the big parts are still attached. Uh, when it landed, and it's just a testament to how well these things are engineered and designed and built and maintained that that airplane stayed together. Yeah. The uh, National Transportation Safety Board has put this on its investigative list, uh, so they're taking a good look into it. Uh, already they've found out that when they tested the oxygen system on the aircraft on the ground, it functioned, which huh. raises a question what was wrong with it at altitude? And it wouldn't be the first time that uh, that a, a regulator or some portion of the uh, oxygen supply system froze because of temperatures and moistures like we uh -huh. were talking about in winter airplanes a few uh -huh. minutes ago. Exactly. Uh, right. So we'll be kind of hanging on the edge of our wingtips to see how this one plays out because that's a spooky, spooky idea. Uh, yeah. Rapid de decompression and an O2 system that's non-functioning. Yeah. Really. Some of our listeners may remember... Uh, my telling the tale a couple of episodes ago about a ride uh, I took uh, in a Cirrus SR-22, a turbocharged SR-22. This was probably a month or so ago. Um, the the uh, company test pilot and our company demo pilot and I flew it uh, from uh, field elevation here at Manassas, Virginia, which is 184 feet, 
all the way up to uh, flight level 240 and did so in about 20, 25 minutes. Uh, once we got to 240, and we had oxygen masks on and, 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 and ready going out of 10,000 feet. Uh, once at 240, we stayed there for probably 10 or 15 minutes. I had my mask cranked up uh, the greater, let's just say, a greater level than the altitude demanded. And um, by the end of that 10 minutes, I was feeling kind of wonky. Um, so I can only imagine how quickly these guys could have lost consciousness and uh, how, how close to the edge uh, some of us really are um, at altitude, especially in the 20s, without pressurization. Um, it's, it's a very tender environment. It's a very razor. The, the, the safety margins there are very razor thin. If you uh, uh, are fortunate enough to, to be flying a turbocharged aircraft a lot uh, in those altitudes, Please, 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 just be very, very careful. Yeah. One of my flying friends, and I don't know if there's any science behind this, but one of my flying friends actually set his own personal minimum um, to use oxygen at a much lower altitude because he was yes. a smoker. Uh -huh. And he felt like his lungs were probably, you know, you know, not efficient enough to to go to the normal standards. I, That's exactly but, uh, right. Well, you know, there's a second layer to the to the miracle aspect of this incident uh, with this with this B two hundred Kinger. Uh, is it there was a, a an emergency medical helicopter flying along below them near Cape Girardeau, Missouri, where where the aircraft landed. I uh, saw the story. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, That uh, they were flying en route. Uh, the uh, pilot of the helicopter uh, told his crew that he just saw something go by. Parts and fell, fell past him. <laughs> it's and it's he got raining to look king it up. airs, guys. <laughs> he got to looking up, and there were other parts falling that he had to maneuver to avoid colliding with. Jeez. I mean, gee, many. What's the odds? Yeah. 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 First off, of having this kind of decompression issue uh, or structural issue like the windshield failing, but then being over another aircraft it, as you're shedding parts on the way to the ground and having parts rain down on the aircraft below and not hit it, it's it's. Would you would you call that a mid-air collision? Yeah. If it if they'd hit. Well, you think about it. Though. I mean, the, the the bigger parts of the of the King Air didn't hit. Uh, the the parts of the King Air that were under control didn't hit, but parts of the King Air would have hit the, the helicopter. Would that be a mid-air collision? Well, it would definitely be a near miss as it stands. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, there were some pictures, if anybody's curious, and I urge you to be curious because it's, it's a fascinating story. Um, I know, Av, I believe AvWeb had a couple of pictures, and um, yeah. Aero Newsnet um, had, had some pictures, and... Uh, Jeb, you showed me a bunch of pictures. Were those online someplace, or were... uh, I can't. Um, I don't know. Is the quick answer? Okay. Um, Somebody those, sent those, them to you. Yeah, those pictures. Someone sent those pictures to me, and I have uh, I've not followed up to learn whether or not they've been posted at AvWeb or ANN or, or some should other site. Check the show notes, and if we find links to any other pictures of this thing, we'll we'll put them in the show notes. Yeah. Um, an amazing story. You show enough want to see those pictures. An amazing yeah, story. I'd, I'd, I'd kind of like to hear, um, uh, once the investigation's concluded and, and this kind of thing, obviously I'm, I'm confident or certainly optimistic that the pilots didn't screw any pooches, but I'd really like to hear more about this story from them at some point. Yeah. yeah. Another good landing. Yeah. Any, right. any landing from which you can walk away. That's right. Right. 
Another story this week, uh, and I saw this story, but one of you two guys added it to our list. The thing about um, the FAA unlocking the orphan aircraft data. Oh, so, yeah. It sounds like yeah. a Dave story. Was that you who put that up? That was me, yeah. yeah. That, this is yeah, pretty I, cool. I need to know more about that. I saw a blurb about that, but uh, I, I'm, I'm curious. Let's put it that way. Well, the FAA has, for years, uh, resisted requests or denied requests for uh, maintenance and, and uh, uh, upkeep data on aircraft for which there's no longer an identifiable type certificate holder. Uh, you can call them orphan aircraft. You can call them, uh, uh, you know, lost in space. But there are a lot of aircraft designs out there, of, of which there are plenty of examples flying, uh, for which there's no existing manufacturer and no traceable owner anymore. Uh, and, and that's been a real handicap to a lot of guys flying antique and classic aircraft to keep them airworthy, because the regulations require that they be kept airworthy to the manufacturer's standards, but then with no manufacturer to give the data to the owner and the FAA unwilling to release the data, it's kind of a catch-22. So after a lot of uh, effort by the Experimental Aircraft Association and its affiliate, the Vintage Aircraft Association, uh, the uh, one of the things in the reauthorization that's uh, going to be proposed to the FAA, uh, to Congress for the FAA in the coming week is uh, uh, a legal change that would allow the release of abandoned type certificate or supplemental type data, including blueprints, to individuals upon request so they can maintain the airworthiness of their vintage aircraft. Uh, this should help a lot of guys uh, who have uh, to go to considerable extra effort and expense to uh, maintain their antique aircraft. It should make it viable to bring back some old designs and maybe even encourage uh, some folks to come out of the woodwork and put some of these back into production again. It's been an issue for years. Uh, the EAA and the VAA started to really push it a few years ago when the FAA started holding conferences on uh, aging aircraft issue, maintenance issues for GA aircraft. So see the FAA's responding to this and trying to move something in the right direction to help the owner of these older air owners of these older airplanes. Uh, let me be the first to um, uh, give credit where credit is due and, and simply add uh, kudos to the FAA for taking this bull by the horns. Let me also, though, ask a question. Anybody got an example of one of these orphan aircraft types? Oh, gee, many. Uh, how about any of the old Stinson, Stimson, Stinson designs? Okay. Interstate, I think, comes to mind as, as perhaps a, an orphaned brand. Uh, Air coops, yeah. Uh, Jiminy, some some of the older Roncas, mm. uh, Culver Cadet. Yeah. Uh, stop me when I've gone too far. You you you're there. Yeah. Okay. I mean, this I agree. This is a real a great step forward. Uh, although I'm going to kind of watch it carefully. This is very very familiar to me um, in my day job, um, which is not aviation related, but in uh, new media production and uh, we, we do a lot of thinking and talking and worrying about the whole copyright mess that's going on these days and and how copyright has really kind of become this this monster um, and uh, there's a lot of stuff like this that 
are locked up, um, uh, intellectual property that has been abandoned, but no one can repurpose it because it's still covered by copyright. And uh, there are a lot of people who every day are working towards trying to get lots of information like this freed up so that it can be reused. And uh, it's it's an ongoing thing. And uh, uh, like you said, credit to, to FAA uh, for trying to make this work in their domain. Um, but well, I, I'm a little, you know, the, the, the part of it I'm watching is that um, the story I read uh, just gave, gave kind of this vague description of what would qualify, you know, like reasonable attempts to locate the owners of the of the uh, you know the certificates and and that's kind of subject to you know well what's that really mean so uh, not to be negative but um, this is a big big ordeal in the whole copyright world and I hope well, we can I think, make it work in the in the aviation world and Jack I think on the point the point you raise is a good one I think though at the same time that uh, whether in the uh, in the realm of um, of uh, money owed various individuals that, say, the federal government or state government owes and uh, um, various other types of searches for people or organizations or other uh, legal entities who have, who have uh, done business in the past but now no longer exist. There are, in my mind, several well-established precedents for what the hoops through which um, a person or a government agency must go to locate such an individual. Yeah. Um, it, it should not be uh, rewriting new law, for example. It shouldn't be in that realm, uh, that kind of a hoop that the FAA has to jump through to accomplish this. Yeah. Well, and they, they, they set up some, some basic uh, criteria for, that, that has to be met uh, before otherwise private data could be released to the to the people in the public uh, you know first the requested data the certificate for the containing the requested data has to be inactive for at least three right. years right. Uh, they can't find the uh, owner of the type certificate owner of record or they cannot find the heir of the owner of record uh, and then there has to be a statement uh, designation that uh, such data, uh, releases such data will enhance aviation safety. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's not going to be a, you know, it's not going to be a slam dunk or a snap. Uh, but let's face it, most of the companies that these guys have to get data, most of the aircraft for which these guys are seeking data, haven't been supported and haven't had an active production company behind the TC for years, even decades. Yeah. Uh, so it seemed like with the legislation passed, and we, we hope that it happens, that it should be a pr pretty quick turn to getting uh, a number of these uh, uh, data sheets out to the owners or their type clubs so that they can uh, better maintain their aircraft and maybe get some other good old birds back under the air. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Well, the 800-pound the gorilla in aviation news this past week was the <laughs> release of the uh, proposed federal budget, which included the FAA budget, which included a pretty blatant, straightforward uh, uh, proposal for user fees. Um, and uh, Not that we told you so. Well, so, uh, and Jeb, I guess this is probably your turf. Want to tell us a little bit about what's going on here and what well, to expect? Well, um, <laughs> just uh, some some basic lay of the land. Um, each year about this time, uh, the current administration uh, makes public its proposed budget for the following fiscal year. 
Uh, the federal fiscal year runs from October 1 through September 30. The budget um, the Bush administration this week proposed is the budget they proposed to begin uh, to take effect October 1 of, uh, of 2007. It's the fiscal year, the federal fiscal year 2008 budget. Um, each agency of the federal government, uh, from the Department of Transportation down to the Small Business Administration, everything in between, um, proposes what numbers they think they'll need to meet or should be able to meet uh, for that that fiscal year. DOT and especially the Federal Aviation Administration are part and parcel of that. Um, in this instance, the FAA has come out, uh, just as other agencies have, with their uh, their version of the fiscal 2008 budget, um, on the on its surface, and I'm sitting here looking at a, at a couple of the the documents that uh, um, give the the broad strokes. Uh, on its surface, it's not that radical a budget. Uh, spending uh, proposed spending is uh, shows modest increases from year to year. Um, nothing out of the ordinary there's there's no huge announcement of of new programs or or new spending initiatives within the FAA budget but and there's that three letter word but the sources or the the, the uh, resources that would comprise this budget the source of those dollars uh, is in for a radical change uh, essentially as as we've been predicting as as uh, just about anybody in in uh, the General Aviation Alphabet Soup organizations has been predicting here for six, nine months. The FAA is proposing a system of user fees to be to be put into place beginning October one of two thousand seven. And that's um, not all. Stay tuned for more. And that's not all. Stay tuned for more. Um, I, I have to confess, uh, I've not sat down and spent the time to. Uh, really dive down deep into the fine print of some of this, uh, nor have I looked at what some of the other organizations, uh, uh, what, what work some of the other organizations have performed in that arena. My understanding and uh, um, basically the, the meme going around is that uh, aviation fuel taxes on, on non-commercial operations, i.e. general aviation, would increase fourfold. Uh, we're paying approximately 20 cents a gallon these days to the feds um, in in a form of an excise tax on each gallon of 100 low lead uh, fuel. Uh, that federal tax would increase from 20 cents roughly to roughly 80 cents a gallon. Um, that's all I have to say on that. So, so this. This proposal does not contain anything where we're going to get a bill when we get flight following or anything like that. Uh, don't be so sure. Well, yeah, I, I think um, if if I were to draw a picture, um, it would be of a of a canvas dwelling with a camel's nose under it. And here's the here's the deal. Here's the deal. The yeah. proposal. The proposal. You know, in cold black and white, says they want to set up a system of user fees for commercial operations. Now they've already narrowed that down to 121 operations uh, only. We'll pay user fees. Uh, 
general aviation and uh, 135 operas will pay higher excise taxes on fuels and certain other fees for certain other services that may be rendered, like registering an aircraft, getting your airman certificate. Uh, they're also talking about uh, fees for access to certain congested airspace areas as they designate. Uh, think Class B. Yeah. So even though you might not be going to uh, Washington National or Dulles, uh, if you got to go through the Class B to get to uh, one of the other airports there, they're going to want to slap a fee on you for sticking your nose in their congested airspace. Uh, and think of it as a, as a nose in a tent that just gets bigger and more intrusive as the years go by. My favorite, my favorite for this is they want the uh, new air traffic control organization to be controlled autonomously so that they don't have to worry about congressional uh, uh, congressional uh, action dragging their feet down on making spending and investment decisions for the new air traffic control system that they <laughs> tell us that they want to build but don't tell us how much they want to spend on it or how they intend to build it yeah I think it's, uh, I think it's safe to say that particular aspect of this proposal is dead on arrival well i'm i'm hoping that I'm, I'm hoping that the whole thing came in with a do not resuscitate order tag to it well uh it's too soon to tell well yeah okay so that's my my next question i mean and this may be the most dramatic example but haven't they been floating user fee like proposals for a few years now and and they all just well, kind it, of get it, it's, shouted it's, down it's been a recurring theme uh you know the clinton administration danced around it but in the end uh was more than happy to go along with congress on air 21 and maintain a system of excise taxes for airline passengers uh cargo way bills and and ga fuel uh the and and to quote uh, Ed Mullen at NBAA, this time it's different. Yeah. Uh, first, in years past, the entire airline industry hasn't been aligned behind the same idea. Uh, the last time this came up as an issue, the uh, uh, legacy carriers, the large, older airlines like uh, Continental and Northwest and Delta and American, were on one side of the issue, favoring an autonomous ATC system that uh, they controlled and user fees for airspace access. And the low fare carriers like Southwest and JetBlue were on the other side of the issue. And of course, GA didn't really have to get into the fight because those guys bloodied one another well enough to make it a non-starter. This time around, they've been on the same page as the hymn book for m about a year already in terms of their speeches, their rhetoric, their lobbying on Capitol Hill, uh, what they've been uh, feeding to the White House. Uh, we've been hearing it from the FAA Administrator, Marion Blakey, for nearly a year. How we need a new funding system so that it's cost-based because the old system's not keeping up. And none of it has, uh, has proven to be accurate according to every measurable uh, uh, yardstick, every measurable parameter. Uh, the trust fund's not running short of money. Uh, it's growing faster than they can spend it. It's growing faster than they can give us a plan to spend it. Uh, projections for its growth uh, uh, say that it will more than keep pace with the investment necessary to come into the next generation air traffic control system. Uh, and nobody's even begun to talk about the cost 
of going to a user fee system, which will require people to keep tabs on what we use, when we use it, send us a bill, and then account for the money that comes in when we, when we pay up. Yeah. Essentially another bureaucracy that exacts its own costs, and of course the, the user fees collected won't begin to cover the costs of the new bureaucracy, so the user fees will have to be increased uh, to cover that. And, you know, for an administration that likes to talk about smaller government and more efficiency, this is two times that they've proposed adding massive numbers and massive bureaucracy to the federal government. And we know what a great success the last one has been so far, <laughs> talking about the Department of Homeland Security and the Transportation Security Administration. That's just gone flawlessly. Yeah, Thank but, you. Yeah. So, But let's, you know, we're... we're like it or not, we're going to get to talk about this a lot as time goes on, or at least right. we're going to oh, talk about it once or twice as time yeah. goes on. But, here's, but here's, let's kind of go ahead. I mean, go ahead. I, don't know, I, I kind of wanted to move on to something else here, but but let me, in real practical terms, what's the effect of this going to be on the average GA pilot who flies out for hundred dollar hamburgers? Well, first first of all, we have to cross the the. Uh, um, the path of whether or not it will actually be implemented, and and I would bet against that simply because. Well, let's let's go with Jack's question in the worst case. Okay. Uh, okay. And I can answer this real succinctly. That hundred dollar hamburger now became a hundred and forty five dollar hamburger. Uh -huh. One one other point. Let me let me try to segue in here really quick. Um, airlines, as we all know, have from time to time declared bankruptcy. And uh, the Chapter 11 uh, bankruptcy uh, format, I'm certainly not a bankruptcy attorney, but uh, basically, you play one on TV. Yeah, uh, basically allows um, a, a business to uh, pay off its creditors um, for cents on a dollar um, and rejuvenate itself and put itself back into business. It allows them to abrogate labor contracts and discharge pension obligations and, uh, and a variety of a variety of other things. Of not, not necessarily uh, in the public interest uh, over the longer term, certainly in the in the in the micro sense. So these user fees would be liabilities owed by the airlines to the federal government. If an airline owing said liabilities to the federal government declares bankruptcy. Um, what will happen to the user fees or that that airline owes? Will they ever be paid back? Furthermore, who uh, will be left holding the bag uh, if that were to occur? Would other airlines ante up? Would the general taxpayer make up the difference? Or would other aviation system users be asked to ante up and make up that difference? Gee, I wonder what the answer to that one will be. Stay I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is either, and I can't take credit for coming up with that question. Uh, but it is an intriguing one, and it's one that I would very much like to hear an answer to from uh, those who are proposing this kind of uh, change. Well, taking Jack's question real seriously, and my last word on this, one estimate that I've seen. Uh, it, and it was based on not knowing what the final numbers would be, uh, uh, predicted that in the fee change, the ch tax structures change, that the airlines, if they got their way, would succeed in offloading somewhere in the neighborhood of $1.5 billion to $2 billion in costs uh, to run the ATC system directly onto general aviation. Now, they're going to try to divide and conquer us by saying, you know, mostly we mean those guys 
flying business jets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Well, they're part of us, too. So think of it as a million and a half, a billion and a half to two billion dollar cost increase for GA and directly savings to the airlines, who in turn are going to charge these fees back to their customers anyway. Yeah. So one, perhaps, one other, yeah, go ahead, one, one, one other point, uh, and Dave, uh, <laughs> I think, uh, keyed key me on this. Um, the the major airlines are the only groups, to my knowledge, who are supporting this this concept. All of the general aviation organizations are opposed to it and are on record in opposition to it. Uh, other organizations that are kind of neither fish nor fowl are, are hard to uh, categorize as being whether being general aviation or air carrier oriented um, generally are also opposed to this. Yeah. Um, the, the, air, the major airlines are really the not only the uh, uh, the genesis of this concept, um, they've successfully sold it to the administration, but they are the ones who are primarily the one uh, in support of it. And if that doesn't tell you something, then I don't know what else does. Yeah. Well, the good news is the majority of the Fortune 500 of corporate America and the majority of the Fortune 1000 of corporate America operates business aircraft and belong to the National Business Aviation Association. So we figure that we can be pretty comfortable which way they're going to line up on this. So it's not just private pilots against the big airlines. Uh, but well, it is going to be with us all year. So yeah. Well, I think like it or not, um, we $100 hamburger flyers uh, in our Cessnas and Pipers and Beechcrafts and, and whatnot um, need to kind of think about this, I'm afraid. And, and, and uh, we need know, to pay attention to it as it develops. I, I, think, um, I think we all should be uh, out and kind of learning about this, uh, either through the media or through our pilot organizations, and uh, figure out what your opinion on it is, and then contact your representatives in Washington. And let that's them right. Know. You don't have to agree with us, but make a noise on your own, whichever way you feel. Yeah. Well, and, and you don't have to just listen to us and, and make up your mind based on what we say. Uh, in fact, go research it. Go download the budget documents. Go download... Um, uh, the, the responses and the, the proposals from the ATA and other airline organizations. And then Go look at the responses from NBAA, AOPA, AOPA exactly GAMA, right. NATA, EAA. Uh, Make up your own mind. Don't, don't take our word for it. And then, uh, irrespective of, of whether you agree with us or not, um, write your congressman, write your senator, express Make yourself. Make your voice and, be heard. Yeah. Exactly right. Because yeah. uh, the, the industry, the community you save may be your own. Um, the uh, uh, the wallet you save may be your own. Yeah. Well, moving on here, um, actually a slightly related subject. We got a piece of email uh, uh, a little over a week ago uh, that sort of got lost in the shuffle last week. But uh, I wanted to touch on it and... and uh, and talk about it a little bit. Um, we are kind of running to the end of our allotted time here, but just uh, to maybe finish things up today. From Michael in Pennsylvania, Michael says, Hello, my name is Michael. I grew up in Allentown, Pennsylvania, not from, not far from LVI. I meant to look that up. Does anybody know what LVI Lehigh is? Lehigh Valley International Airport. There we go. Growing up, yeah. I was just up there last weekend. Growing up, all I wanted to do was fly airplanes and do it for a living. To make a long story short, 9-11 came and I put that dream on hold and became an over-the-road truck driver. Guess I like traveling, he writes. But recently I got the bug for flying again and came across your podcast, and it's, it's a great podcast. I downloaded all of them and listened to them all while driving down the road. Yay, good job. Then he writes, but also, while listening... 
to your show, it makes me wonder if flying is even worth getting into with all the stuff that you talk about in the show, like user fees and the TSA. In order to live my dream, I have to give up a very good job, which I would hate to do, just to have fallen short of the runway. So please tell me the state of tell me that the state of aviation is a lot better than what it sounds like. Again, I love the show and I've listened to all of them. I'm a subscriber and can't wait for the next one. That's Michael from from uh, Allentown, Pennsylvania. Um, Michael, come on in. The water's fine. It is fine. Yeah. It is fine. You know, I um, we we bitch and moan a lot. Um, primarily, like speaking for myself. Primarily because I have an overdeveloped sense of how things should be versus how they are. And uh, call it romanticism, call it idealism, call it whatever you want to. Obstinance. I, I, obstinance, <laughs> stubbornness, um, uh, uh, insanity. Um, I, 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 I know how, how things should be. I know how the basic the basic uh, tenets of fairness should should work in in this industry and in this relationship with the government and and how the two interact and um yeah it gripes my butt on on more than one occasion that uh, we see some of this mil malfeasance and nonfeasance uh coming out of the federal government and there's state governments and local governments who, who do the same thing also the federal government has no monopoly on this no um that said just look at new it's york it's yeah it's still worth it it's yeah. worth every penny. It's worth every day. It's worth every breath. Every hour, uh, every minute. To be able to um, get in your own airplane or, or get in one rented or borrowed or, or stolen um, and, 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 and be <laughs> yeah, your own okay, pilot. Yeah. And, 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 now we're and, over the top. Well, here's what I wanted to ask. Here's what I wanted to ask on this subject. So, and we we sort of talked about this offline a little bit, but uh, let's just spend the last few minutes here talking about this. Jeb, you sort of alluded to this last episode. Where did you learn how to fly? What was the circumstances of you learning start starting to fly? My, well, going back, um, and I'm not going to date myself here, but I will say early, early mid '70s uh, is when I learned how to fly. Um, growing up as a as an adolescent. Uh, my father was a pilot. He didn't fly for money, uh, like myself. Uh, he was a general aviation pilot. He had his commercial ticket, but uh, was mainly a pro quote private pilot, lowercase p. Um, and when I was growing up, I felt that being able to fly and and fly an airplane and pilot an airplane, I thought that was about the best, coolest thing a human could do. And there you go. Um, my my father was obviously obviously supportive. Um, my high school graduation gift from my parents was flying lessons through from pre-solo to private pilot. That's great. Oh, and, very cool. Um, uh, it was very cool, and I'm, I'm to this day uh, remain very appreciative of that uh, that gift. Uh, now I, we know who to blame. <laughs> now we know who to blame. Do you by chance remember? I have this theory, and maybe it's just me. I have Go this ahead. theory that we have a special bond with the person who taught us to fly. Do you remember Denise your first... Blankenship, uh -huh. um, the female flight instructor, and this was back in the early 70s when that was a rarity. Um, Denise, her, her father was a captain for Eastern Airlines based in Atlanta. She apparently grew up in the, in the Atlanta area. Uh, I was in South Georgia at a, at a small town airport called Tifton, a small town called Tifton. Um, she smoked in one day um, as the new CFI. Uh, she was flying uh, uh, corporate uh, Cessna 310, 
um, getting her multi-time, billing hours, and doing flight instruction on the side. She was the flight instructor du jour uh, at that local airport, and she is the one who finished me up um, and uh, signed me off for my private pilot checkride. Last I heard of or from Denise, she was a captain for U.S. Airways. Uh, and I do not know um, uh, where whether I came across her name in a in an Alpa magazine um, literally more than a decade ago. She was a captain for U.S. Airways at the time. Yeah, very and, cool. Uh, if anyone knows her, or uh, 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 God forbid, Denise, if you're listening, uh, uh, please forgive <laughs> me, but give me a call, uh, drop me a note. Love to hear from you. Hope all's well with yeah. you. Dave, let me come back to your story in a second. Let me tell my story real quickly here. Um, sure. You know, like all of us, I had always dreamed about learning how to fly as a kid and as a, as a young adult. Uh, and, and maybe like lots of people, though, I didn't even have a clue that that was something that was in my reach. You know, I mean, I had the dreams, and I'd drive slower when I drove past an airport, um, but I didn't even know how to begin it. It just didn't seem like something that was within my grasp. When I when I first moved to California, um, well into my adult life, uh, I moved in my apartment, and the the woman who lived in the apartment next door, we shared a set of steps and a little a little uh, a stoop, and uh, we were chatting on the steps one day and about what we were what you know what we did in our lives and what was going on, and she told me how she was learning how to fly at the at the local airport. And uh, I said, well, I've always thought that would be cool. I'd love to do that. And she says, oh, yeah, you should do it. It's easy. And she gave me the whole rap about going down to the FBO and taking the demo flight. And she gave me the name of her her instructor, who I got on the telephone and made an appointment. And that's when I first went down to uh, Palo Alto Airport in Palo Alto, California. I've talked about that before. And uh, my first instructor, the, the, the person who taught me to fly, was a guy named Jeff Aronson, um, who also went off to fly for the airlines, but uh, he managed to get me about 90 to the way, 90 percent of the way through to my uh, to my private check ride, and then he got the call, and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, I finished up with another instructor. But Jeff was the one who taught me to fly, which I think is a very special gift, and uh, um, you know. It was terrific. There, you know, as time goes on, I'm going to ask you guys for more stories about your early, early. Good. You know, and I, I have some as well. Dave, where did you learn how to fly? What was that all about? Oh, that's a little complicated. And where, my, and my, where is he or she so we can charge them as they should be charged? My, my, my uncle on my dad's side, my uncle Phil, flew B-17s in World War II. Uh, bought a new 182 the second year they were on the market, and that year gave me my first airplane ride. 1957, and that I was a bit, you know, that I never forgot that. Uh, like Jeb, I, I just couldn't conceive of going through life not being able to fly. But what I knew of learning to fly, what I knew of the cost, uh, and my work background and salary range, I was sure it was completely out of reach. Until uh, a buddy of mine took me out to a hang gliding site in southern Indiana, overlooking the Ohio River. Now, my opinion of hang gliding was, well, that's just, you know, I've seen pictures from California. They run down the hill, they get about six feet off the ground and fly six feet off the ground to the bottom of the hill. Big whoop. (laughs) Well, we turn the corner toward this bluff, and the very first thing I see is a hang glider and a pilot climbing above the tree level and turning into the wind and climbing higher. It's like, whoa, my lord. I sold a motorcycle, went to Chattanooga that summer, bought a 
a, a Seagull Seahawk 3 learned to hang glide. Spent a week at Crystal Air Sports learning to hang glide at Raccoon Mountain Flight Park. Uh, Dan Johnson uh, of Dan Johnson by DanJohnson.com, uh, very active. Dan Johnson, who was a guest uh, a couple of weeks ago on the a podcast. A few weeks ago, Dan owned and ran the school where I learned to hang glide. And a few years later, after I moved to Chattanooga to work for Glider Rider magazine covering hang gliding, Dan taught me to fly trikes. So I got versed in ultralights and logged a lot of time in, in different ultralights and was pretty fat and dumb and happy with that level of flying until I came here to Wichita uh, 16 years ago and living and working in the air capital and writing about the aviation business here in Wichita it just seemed insane that I not have a license so uh, with thoughts toward my future my wife and I bought a Cherokee 140 from a young man that worked at Boeing, Wichita, uh, adopted the hangar that it was in at Augusta Municipal Airport. Now linked up with flight instructor Don Hicks at Aircraft Training Specialist at uh, Augusta Municipal, three Alpha uniform, and in a month, 43 hours total time, Don got me through my written, my oral, my check ride. And I got my private pilot's license in 1995. And aviation uh, safety has not been the same since. <laughs> the, the FAA's got me grease penciled into so many radar screens. It's not I, funny. My in number and yours. That's right. Oh yeah. So 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 to Michael from Pennsylvania, you got to do it. Just yeah. You know, and and, and, and and don't think in terms of giving up your job in order to go get a job in aviation. I mean, maybe that's in the future for you. But but you know. Go to your Scratch local the FBO, itch first. Take the demo flight. You know, right. find the local pilots group and 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 hang out with some pilots. Uh, Hook you, up with local EAA chapter. Um, do do the demo flight. I think last time I checked, it was forty nine dollars. It's it's uh, you get what you pay for, but uh, uh, it's it's definitely gives you the opportunity to actually control the airplane. Um, and if you if you really you've got a budget uh, issue, uh, Michael. Take a look into uh, learning to get uh, working on your sport pilot ticket mm -hmm. first. Mm -hmm. uh, it takes half the time, should be about half the money. Uh, you can learn to fly in some fancy new light sport aircraft uh, that will be new and shiny and make you really depressed when you finally go off and rent one of the old airplanes to work on your private pilot's license. <laughs> but it will expand your horizons. It will get you into the air, and nothing changes your perspective like airtime. And it's also a life extender because most people don't realize this, but uh, uh, according to Zen and a number of other uh, non-religious philosophies, time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Exactly right. There you go. So the more you spend exactly flying, right. the longer you live. Well, thanks again, guys. We've run out of our allotted time here. Uh, Jeb Burnside, AviationSafetyMagazine.com and AvWeb.com. Thanks, Jeb. My pleasure. One one thing before we go. Okay, quick. Um, and you probably be hearing a little bit more about this in coming weeks. Also, uh, the FAA today released a uh, published in the Federal Register a major rulemaking. Um, uh, pilot, flight instructor, and pilot school certification proposed rule. It's a 50-page, um, uh, finely spaced document. Um, it touches on just about every aspect of uh, 
parts 61, 91, and 141 of the Federal Aviation Regulations. There's a lot going on in here. No one has really had a chance to digest it all. Uh, I've, I've looked at a few things in there. Um, a lot of it is, is, is just correct in, corrections and, and uh, making uh, various sections of the, of the FARs comport with other various sections. But there's also op- opportunity for mischief, and there's also opportunity for uh, uh, the, the law of unintended consequences to arise. So anyone who, with an interest in any of this uh, should probably go get a copy of that. Uh, but again, I think you'll be hearing a lot more about this in, in coming weeks from other organizations. Great. And Dave Higdon, uh, DaveHigdon.com, you got any last words here tonight, Dave? Well, keep your eyes on the horizon, uh, fellow aviators, because uh, a little bit later this year, the uh, FAA should be, if they, if they hold true to their promise, publishing a notice of proposed rulemaking that's going to set up a timeline for shifting to an ADSB-style uh, uh, system for air traffic control uh, and requiring ADSB equipment in your aircraft by probably 2020 if you want to be able to continue to access airspace like Class Bs. Uh, there's some really big benefits that are going to come with this over the years. Uh, the question is going to be how they make the transition, uh, how fast they're going to require us to have it, the equipment changed over, and what that equipment's going to cost. So uh, it's going to be a busy year uh, in terms of legislation and regulation with the FAA. Uh, this only comes along like this once every five years. So, you know. 2008, we won't be talking about it so much. That's right. <laughs> and in any event, soon it will be spring. Yes. A hang in there. Oh, spring This eternal. winter cannot last forever. That's right. And I'm Jack Hodgson, jackhodgson.com. Don't forget to visit the website at uncontrolledairspace.com. Thank you, everyone. We'll talk to you again next time. The water is Water is the water is